This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. And happy to be back here. Another one of our podcasts, broadcasts, radio show. Um, this is going to be the second half of this thing that Ramdas did. Now, it's from 1979, and it's with Dr. Patricia Hunt Perry. And the more I listen to it, um, and yes, I do, this is all brand new to me. Just like when you're first going to hear this, this is when I'm first hearing it and setting it up and making some comments and personal anecdotes around this material, which, uh, although there's a variance of different subject matters here and different questions and so on, um, I, I kind of feel there's a link. At least I'm going to try and link them up together. So um, the the initial uh, topic was, was uh, interesting. It was about past lives and how past lives definitely play a role in any therapeutic setting with a therapist that they have to be taken into account. And, of course, that's all true. And um, just her suggestion was that uh, taking the karmic point of view, if you want to call it that, um, uh, is that a new way that uh, therapy can ensue where coming from that kind of consciousness? And I, Ram Dass's initial thing was that who you see or who anybody sees as a person depends and then in a therapeutic setting depends on who you think you are. But in any setting, anybody you meet, I mean, geez, every day I find, you know, uh, hopefully I have enough awareness and consciousness that I can see where I'm, when I'm stuck somewhere and caught in whatever it is, uh, and I meet up with somebody, I'm just, gee, that starts to be a projection reflection of where I'm at, whatever uh, judgments I have about that person or whatever reacting I'm doing with that person. So I think this goes a long way to um, really describe our everyday interactions uh, with each other. It really do depend on where you think, you know, who you think you are in any in any moment and being as free as you are or as caught. Uh, related to therapy, I thought this was interesting. The problem, interesting, the problem with most therapies that the, is that they identify that person with the neurosis, with a sort of any sort of neurosis or psychosis. And if you identify someone with with that, with a neurosis, it invests the reality of that thing and makes it, you know, much harder to get rid of. Um, and uh, for those of us that have been in any kind of therapy, um, boy, is that something that's important? Because if you, if then that does happen, and I, um, I have certainly, and just in even you know, just even if you're, forget about big word therapy and doc, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists and all that. How many times have we all um, sat with a friend, you know, and who who was in need? And wanted some feedback, just that simple level. And, uh, you know, the more that you identify that person with what you think is their fall down in the situation, uh, that certainly is going to obstruct any, uh, th the chance of becoming free of it. And so I think that's a, a wonderful, uh, uh, statement of, of that reality. Uh, th they then talk about, um, 
institutions back then losing their legitimacy. Institutions today are losing le- legitimacy. I mean, look at uh, the impossibility of uh, of our government to function um, with the with the um, through the supposed balance of power in Congress and so on that nothing can get done. Um, so Ramdas talks about the reassertion of the human heart and uh, I th- and talks about the Constitution reads to him as as protecting the individual human heart, you know, not just gun rights. So, uh, but uh, moving through these things, I, I like to connect the historical thing. So, you know, the cultural revolution, shall we say, of a sort through psychedelics in the 60s where we come from, um, to today, I mean, is there not so many parallels with the war, with the stressors that are going on? Certainly the stressors, you know, high-end stressors and, and the, the railing out against institutions back then and, and, uh, what's going on now and, you know, with, with, uh, with uh, some of the different movements, uh, that are happening in this country. Um, so I think that, the the idea here that is being proposed uh, from that time of uh, around the reassertion of the individual human heart the reassertion of our desire to uh develop our compassionate heart and share that and that's what i like to take from, you know from that has been growing from that time to now and i think that's uh when you really think about it, a pretty amazing thing. The, the whole thing moves then into uh, this conversation, moves into uh, talk about media and, uh, and technology and how that's used for the betterment of uh, society or is it not? And, um, and they're speaking then, of course, uh, about the using mass media, obviously television in this case, but some of the things that are said uh, are so applicable. And, and then I can see, you know, what Ramdas was talking about. For instance, um, media corrupts everything it touches, right? I mean, the truth is that um, uh, he said he felt that uh, technology – allows people to move towards liberation at an incredible rate because they can run through fantasy of fantasy through media um, that is, you know, a potential for releasing karmic stuff. So, he, uh, so, but then at the same time, he talks about his own inability at that time, he he did a television show, apparently. Then, I'm, which I gotta, boy, we'd like to find that for the archives. It's called Transformations, and it's a TV show from '79. They don't mention any. I mean, I'm gonna try and ask him, but anybody knows that out there, a TV show that Ramdas did that was on early morning television in the New York area in '79. Let me know because we want to get a hold of it. But um, but he talks about how. He he turned down stuff like uh, back then was Johnny Carson and Dick Cavett, 
he turned it down because he felt it was just not something that he could do honestly and have a real human exchange because they're, you know, the kind of agenda that is there for television. Um, and again, he reiterated, you know, media can destroy the message by the way it delivers it. Um, now, you know, he talks about how much his price is determines the message that he gives. But that's true of all of us. Now, if we take this one step further, interestingly enough, I think when we talk about where we're at with the, with, with the web now and how we're all communicating to each other so easily without any restraint, you know, there is no restraint like television is a restraint. Um, but the essence here, and then he talks about, which is the most interesting thing is how much, again, he, how much is, is his price? Because he has a price, wanting to be famous. Do we have a price? We want to be famous. We want to be more well-known. We want to be more well-liked. We want to, we want money. What do we want? But that determines the message that's given. And he says, if I'm on the make to become famous and powerful, then they got me, you know, <laughs> then that's, isn't that true? Um, so the, the capper of this is, um, not the capper, that's not the right word, but the, the interesting dissecting thought when he says he didn't do Carson, he didn't do Cabot back then, right? For, for more than one reason that we just discussed. But early this year, he did Oprah. Now, when, when this whole thing came up and I discussed it with him, he said to me, I think I can have, uh, you know, that there's a real human behind all of this Oprah-ness and uh, I could have a conversation with her that would be two ways. There would be listening on both sides. And I said, well, I don't have any idea. I've heard from friends that have met her and everything, that she's sincere and so on. And he wanted to go forward. He was not, I think it was also because... He didn't care. I mean, he, there was nothing. I mean, what at this point can he gain? I mean, his only interest these days, by the way, and why we're one of the reasons this podcast is going on is, is to allow uh, this uh, a new generation of, uh, of people to find some of the uh, find these the wisdom in, in in some of what he's done over the years and some of what he's doing now, like this cultivating loving awareness uh, film, which I talked about last week, which any of you who have not heard about that, by the way, go to the ramdas.org and you'll see the banner and the links and all that. Um, but um, so I think that in this case, there he didn't have a price. He had nothing to lose. Uh, cause he wasn't, there wasn't anything in him that needed anything. And in the end, of course, uh, when she came, I, th well, for those of you who've seen that show, there is an incredible moment, um, between them, uh, that, that, uh, it's actually, um, by the way, on, uh, our, um, what is it? I think it's on our Ramdas official channel YouTube site. If you, there's a few Oprah vignettes, and it's on one of them where you can see the moment they are completely present together. And that 
is a moment that he did not think he could get to um, back then. So interesting. And basically, he says, a being that's free has no price. You know, they're priceless. As long as I have a price, I am transmitting fear because I have something to lose. The minute I have no price, I can transmit perfect joy of presence and freedom. I think that that, uh, his statement, obviously relative to him being a public figure back then and now, but in a different, I'm trying to think of this in a, in a different light. And that's, we're all doing this by virtue of just being um, part of any social network. We are all doing, we are sharing ourselves. It could be a picture, it could be an article, it could be a thought. We are all doing this all the time now. And we are not constrained by any uh, institution. I mean, that's, you know, the freedom of the web is in incredible that way. But wherever we do have some desire system going, you know, that's beyond just the sharing, and you can see it in different aspects of the, of the social networks where there is, a, you know, even the most mild come on, then it, it you know, it loses, you lose trust. And uh, so I think this is a great thing for all of us you know, relating to many of the different points, uh, you know, that, that, that are, um, that he talks about here relate to us today in a way, it's almost like this culture has been evolving in this way, you know, to support the, you know, the human heart expansion since that time. And I think more and more of us really want to share that. Well, here, listen to this lecture. It's uh, it, it, not lecture. I'm <laughs> listen to this wonderful back and forth with Ramdas and Dr. Patricia Hunt Perry, and uh, on Ramdas here and now. And we will uh, catch up with you next week. Namaste. It's great. It's great. We're back and we're um, a little bit cooler now. You were talking about people having um, karmic past and so forth. And one of the things that's been interesting me a lot lately is whether we should work with individuals in terms of past lives more in helping them in what is traditionally called psychotherapy or whatever. Is there a whole new profession or um, uh, group that needs to arise to work with the troubled individual in our society perhaps to look at it from a karmic point of view? Obviously, if you're treating a person who's 30 years old and uh, he or she has had these 30 years and you're trying to look at that lifespan and say, well, why is this person having this particular problem? And it comes from a past life. As you would indicate, you're not really doing anything. Yeah. So do we need to, um, yeah. to look at this in a different way and do we need a new profession? What do we need to assist individuals? 
Well, we're um, in uh, traditional psychotherapy that comes out of, that tries to keep its link to the scientific community. We're a little bit like the uh, drunk looking for his watch under the streetlight, uh, and someone comes along and helps him, and they can't find the watch, and he says to the drunk, wait, did you lose it? And the drunk said, I lost it up in the alley. Well, why are you looking here? Because there's a light here. And in a way, um, what is measurable and noticeable is child experiences and so on, and sometimes heredity. Uh, but as a psychologist who did personality development research, I can say that it's, at least when I left the field, even with multiple factor analytic techniques, the best predictive things you could get from all your environment and heredity of personality variables and pathology or neurosis and so on was uh, perhaps of a correlation of maybe 50, which is about uh, one quarter of the variability in the whole thing. In other words, three quarters of the way it's all coming out is still what's called chance or a wastebasket category, which leaves ample space for reincarnation, for God, for uh, for, for, for chance. That's delightful. So um, I don't think that we can systematically do something. What we can do is encourage people in the helping professions to uh, not be as enamored of their uh, models of cause and effect and to just be a little more spacious about the whole business. And I think that um, it depends on who you see when somebody walks into your office. Do you see a client or a patient? Is it a man or a woman you see? Or do you see a fellow human being who is caught in a dilemma? Or do you see uh, more of the play of God? Or a soul, like so many souls went down on the ship? I mean, who do you see when they walk in? Well, who you see depends on who you think you are. And the rule of thumb is if a therapist is busy thinking they're a therapist, then there's only room for a patient in the office, you know. While if a, a being is somebody who is working on themselves, and their work is being a therapist, but their identity is that of being an awakening awareness or awareness, then they see another human being that same way. And the vehicle that brings two people together is therapy, perhaps. Like, my first therapy patient turned me on to grass, okay, and did a great service for me, okay? Now, he helped me a lot, although I was his therapist, so I don't know, uh, he's ended up kind of neurotic, but I seem to be neurotic, so I don't know uh, how you define the game anymore, really. Um, that should lose a lot of listeners. <laughs> uh, that, um, I think that there is a place for psychotherapy, but I think that like when I'm working with a fellow who's in a hospital in San Francisco, his parents called me from Lawrence, from Kansas somewhere, said he had been hospitalized for violence and for attempting suicide. And he was very agitated and very manic. And he almost was unable to be talked to. They brought him to the phone and he was screaming and yelling at me and telling me to, and labeling me all kinds of things. And then I call the next night and um, they said he was too, he was in chains, they couldn't get to him, and I said, just tell him I called, that's all. Then I called the next night. We got on the phone, he was on heavy tranquilizers, and he was soporific and kind of depressed, and we, this went on for about seven days. Each day he told me he was going to commit suicide. I said, well, if you don't commit suicide, I'll speak to you tomorrow night. Okay? At the end of a week, I said to him, you know, 
What's interesting to me is that thus far, because of all the pills you're taking, your moods are going up and down, your personality variables are changing, but you still know I'm here and I still know you are here. And there's some level at which you and I are here together in just our awareness behind it all. You know? And I said, maybe that's the only contact you and I can make now. And I'm just holding your hand at the level of awareness. And you've got to do what you've got to do with that level of personality. And it feels to me that what I was doing was making contact with a place in him which has nothing to do with neurosis and psychosis. The problem with most therapies is that they identify the, that entity with the neurosis or the psychosis. And if you identify somebody with something, it invests the reality of that thing and it makes it harder to get rid of. You, you understand what I'm saying? So that, to me, the question of who you see a person you are with, what role, you, whether you cast them in their role or in their pathology or anything, determines how hard it is to get out of it. And so, I think that the helping professions have a long way to go in getting rid of that kind of professional labeling that makes change almost impossible. This whole idea of change is, it keeps coming up in our culture. It seems to me that we're going through a period when perhaps the ground is almost changing underneath us. Um, again, to go back to Thompson, he talks about a time when the academic institutions took the legitimacy away from the old church institutions. What do you think is going to happen now to our institutions? Are we at a period in which they are losing legitimacy and we're turning again to the sacred, to the spiritual? Well, I'd rather say it a slightly different way. I think that we are, that the institutions are losing legitimacy, and I am delighted. Because we have invested in the institutions and been willing to sacrifice the individual into the institution. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, we certainly have done that in large numbers. <laughs> and if I were to see the, what the issue is, it's the reassertion of the human heart, of the individual heart that more individuals, Proposition 13 was really individuals doing something at some point. I mean, institutional things then got created, but the original thing was, I've had enough. You know, that kind of feeling. And I feel now that more people are, that what was called in this generation, me-ism or narcissism, the self-growth movements and all that was put down by the society because it represented the breakdown. People were more interested in their own relationship to the universe than in being a good member of a, an institutional team. And I think that a mature, if I, if I read the, uh, the Constitution correctly, it seems to me that it is to protect the individual human heart. And that a lot has gotten lost in the shuffle. And that's what I see as the reassertion of something extremely healthy. When Mahatma Gandhi walked, came out of meditation, when the Congress Party of India asked him to help get rid of the British, because he was the head of the party, and he meditated for three months and he says, I've got it. And he led the march, the Satyagraha, he led the march to the ocean, went in and bathed and came out and there was a salt tax the British had imposed and which meant that Indians had to buy, pay a tax that took two weeks of their salary for salt they needed to survive because it was so hot <laughs> as it is now. And in the, and he reached down and he picked up, it was illegal for an Indian to mine salt, and he reached down at the end of the edge of the ocean and he picked up a handful of salt that had formed. By doing that, he broke the law. 
He was one frail human being taking one human act and pitting it against the British government. And he won. A month later, 700,000 people had been put in jail for mining their own salt. And that was the beginning of the break, the real critical point of breaking the back of the empire, which was the most powerful empire in the world at that moment. And later, when you saw that frail man walking barefoot into the parliament, the British parliament, in that huge institution, that monolithic structure, and here's this frail little man walking in, who one little man reaching down and picking up salt could do it. That's a statement about the individual in relation to the institution. To me, when I look in Washington at the White House and Congress and the FBI building and the Mint, it looks like a movie set, like facades to me. I mean, uh, it doesn't do the thing to me it's supposed to do. It's supposed to give me a feeling of reverence and awe, you know. Or at least fear. Or at least fear, yes. <laughs> Good, let's take another break for a moment. It seems to me, uh, Ram Das, that lately a number of people who are interested in spiritual things have become interested in television. I know that I saw a thing that you did not too long ago on a program called Transformations, which unfortunately was on very early in the morning and perhaps people didn't see it. But at that time, you seemed to be making more than just a, uh, a regular statement. You seemed to, be, to me to be making a statement about how we could use something in the future like media, and particularly like television in that case, in a different way. Mm. Could you uh, talk a bit about that, and do you see that as a possibility in the kind of opening that um, we're talking about in the society? I've been fascinated with the ways in which I've been wrong in life. And <laughs> but I like to do it publicly because it's more fun that way. And uh, for example, in 1947, I was very active in the movement to get nuclear peacetime use of nuclear energy because that was going to free us from hunger and from want, right? Yeah, I don't know if you remember, you know, somebody here remembers that time. And um, so in a way, the karma of what's happened is as much on me as anyone else, you know, because I did it out of the best intentions, but I was wrong, all right? The cost was too high. We, hadn't, we didn't have enough foresight and wisdom to assess the cost of it. We thought it was going to be free. We were going to get it free, home free, and have free energy forever. And... Um, well, I did a similar thing with television. I saw television as the worst menace, as a psychologist, as the worst menace to mankind, humankind. I now see the situation very differently. I now see that, science, that television, which is um, just like um, LSD comes out of technology, that it's an aspect of technology that is moving people towards liberation at an incredible rate, which is bizarre. Because the average American homeowner now, home person now, looks four and a half, five hours a day at television. And uh, I've thought about, like a kid at 12 years old, how many adult roles they vicariously live through. And I realize now that the, the media is taking them through uh, fantasy after fantasy after fantasy, burning out stuff that might have taken lifetimes. I mean, it's a lifetime runner. It's running them through incarnations almost, vicariously. So, um, but it also appears to me that, the, that in the past, like Christ walks a few miles among a few villages and spreads the word among a few dozen, few hundred, few thousand people mainly. The power of his statement, the purity of his statement, 
and the timing of it moves out and out and out and it's still the waves and it's like a pebble dropping a pebble into a pool it's still resonating back and forth out in in infinity you know now um uh, Buddha walks around to the deer park and walks and does a little teaching for 40 years, one guy, and it's still Buddhism, half the world is Buddhist, you know, I mean, it's still an incredible thing. Um, now we have this incredible uh, instrument, technology, for sharing being with one another. But the problem is that very few people are pure enough to have anything to say that can liberate anybody else. You know, that's what I'm aware of, that, that the media is sitting there waiting for consciousness, but there isn't any consciousness. I mean, what a Christ could have done, like what Pope, what the new Pope is doing with the media is awesome. He is a jewel, by the way, a spiritual jewel in my book. All right, I am very awed by the new Pope because I watched his Easter message in London on television from the Vatican Square, and I felt the living spirit of Christ. Right, and that was, you see, and there was television, and he was saying uh, sort of happy Easter and good peace in in forty different languages or so forty five different languages to all the peoples of the world, and uh, they were all listening, and he was saying it, and he was saying it from a living spirit place in his being. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, and I realize now that that media is just waiting for the purity to make the contact because if you, people like like I was talking to the guys at the studio and I was saying to them you know I want to talk I want to look right into the eye of the camera and meet the eye of the person that's looking and all I have to do is not get caught in the camera that I'm seeing and realize I'm looking into the eye and the heart and the soul of another human being and talk directly to that human being and forget the camera but I said, I'm afraid the looking into the camera thing has been all used up because now everybody looks into the eye of the camera. See, and they showed me those cameras where they have the words of the news thing, or the, the cue card, right on the front where the lens is. I mean, even that, and they're using mirrors to get to the lens. It blows my mind. So it's not even they're looking down or looking up. But I said, the difference is the focal length. The eye is focusing on those words. I'm looking into the, that place, right? And I'm looking with my heart, not just with my eyes. And I realize now that uh, what happened was, many years ago, there was a, a fellow by the name of Lomax. He was an interviewer in Los Angeles. He was a black interviewer uh, on a television station, and he interviewed me. And I was told specifically, you look at the interviewer, don't look at the camera. But I turned and I looked into the eye of the camera and I talked to the people through the camera. And that week he got something like 200 letters saying, who was that guy on the show? It felt like he was inside the middle of my head. See, now you say, oh my God, we're going to have a new power trip and everybody's going to be... And people indeed would if they could. But if their motivation is power, our society is so sophisticated now in sensing, in the paranoia of sensing the hustle that what I'm saying is when there is somebody that isn't hustling, like I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. I'm not trying to get you to buy my magazine about how to get to God. I'm not trying to get you to declare yourself for any religion. I'm not doing it. There's no hustle. There's nothing I'm going to collect from that. So I can afford to be just what I am. And it may well be that that kind of straightness, which I'm not straight enough yet, so that when I don't come into, when I come into the presence of this media this huge media thing in which the minds of everybody is fixed a certain way, 
I don't cower a bit, right? I still have to realize. Like I remember once I was sitting with Maharaji, my guru. He's got a blanket. He's sitting on a table. He's got miracles coming out of his toes. He can walk through walls. He can get people elected prime ministers. He can do it all without even leaving his, his table. He can do it with a thought form. And he's looking, and Indira Gandhi goes by with jeeps and limousines and tanks and all, and he looks at that and he says, look at all that, and it's just a worldly king. Okay? And I could see that from the point of it, like he said to me, I hear you're going to Mars. I Meaning you Westerners going to Mars. I said, yeah, he's, and he giggled. He thought that was the funniest thing. Well, that giggle is so free of the values when we say you're going to Mars. You know, you're going to Mars? <laughs> All right, you know. <laughs> Do you hear that? Right. And in a way, it's going to take that kind of consciousness that's free of those cultural values for that thing to really happen. Hmm? So it really comes back to the same thing that, that we've been talking about before. It takes working on ourselves or developing people who will be able to do this from a conscious place rather than talking about the um, terrible aspects of technology, but really developing people. How do we go about that? I mean, we've talked about the 70s being a time when people started to do that. Are we developing a group of people who could do that in a conscious way and not, um, you know, distort? Uh, well, I think that those people are developing. Most of those people that are becoming conscious enough so that they would actually be able to transmit a straight message on television wouldn't have anything to do with the media at the moment. They're hidden away and they're just doing their work because the media just corrupts everything it touches at this point that way. However, as the media starts to, it can't develop them, but as it starts to give space to them, which is through public broadcasting, through uh, cable TV, just through having used up all their other stuff, they start to be interested, and they can't go all the way out to the really free ones, but they can go a little further in, a little further in, a little, they can get to people like me. They can't get all the way into somebody like Maharaji, my guru, but, I mean, the old Maharaji, but they can't, they can get uh, to somebody like me that's, that's for sale, in a way. See, I have a price, see, I mean, you hear what I'm saying? And, uh, but how much my price is will determine how pure the message is, too. How do you mean that? Well... In other words, if I'm just on the make to become famous and powerful, mm. they got me. And I'm just going to be there. Like, people say to me, I was invited to appear on, like, uh, the Dick Cavett show or the Johnny Carson show. And I say, no, I won't do that. Because professional interviewers really turn me off because they're professionally interested in everything and nothing gets to them. Mm -hmm. And it's not a real conversation with a human being. Like, the nice thing about that Keith Berwick interview that I did was that Keith was really listening. He was really relating to me. Mm -hmm. And because he's a philosopher and he's interested in these areas, that's a different kind of an experience. If I were totally on the make, I would have jumped to do Johnny Carson. I mean, I could have become the big guru of the time just being on the Johnny Carson show. But it's not, it's not a clean situation for work. If I were pure and total, if I were Christ or Buddha, I could do the Johnny Carson show easily. Maybe I wouldn't, but I could. <laughs> Maybe a modern-day Christ or Buddha would and could. I can't. I mean, still, when I want to do a television thing, I say, look, I've got to have a camera. I've got to pick the crew. I've got to have conscious camera people. I've sometimes sat with an audience in which there's going to be a video done, and the cameraman, which is from a television station like San Francisco, 
is standing in front of me since he's doing a direct on and he has been hired by the union he's a union employee photographing me like I'm a side of beef mm -hmm. and I am so totally open to the consciousness of the people around me because that's where my message comes from so he is destroying my message he isn't doing it intentionally. I have compassion for his predicament, but I'm not going to create that environment. And most television studios are impossible environments to work with. And until television realizes that unless it's just going to keep mirroring itself, it has to create environments to allow other forms to express themselves. So it doesn't destroy it. The problem is that the media sometimes destroys the message by the way in which it collects the message. Really? You say you um, personally are, are worried about not being pure enough to do some of this yet. Um, do you think that you're attached to having it be absolutely pure before you do it? I mean, you know, is there a point at which you have to be able to put out what you can do there and um, not be attached to being perfect, let me put it that way? And that's, to some extent, been the story of your life. I think it's a t I think you've got to walk a very fine line that you've got to keep out there in the marketplace keep doing it but you've got to treat it all as an exercise to work on yourself so that you're constantly getting clearer lighter more present your heart more open your compassion deeper at the same moment you can't go walk into a cave and do that you got to stay in the market at least I do I have to stay in the marketplace and so the process is a two working both ways that I'm doing it out in the marketplace but at the same moment I understand that until I am really free unless like as long as I'm afraid of death then as long as people come and wave the flag of death before me I'm gonna shudder and that then everybody knows my price and as long as I have a price, institutions can control me. If I have no price, that's what Christ said. He said, go ahead, nail me up. What are you going to do? It's on my body. There's no big deal. He had no price. You know, a being that's free has no price. That's the, the whole point. They're priceless. They're, they're priceless. And as long as I have a price, I am transmitting fear at some level or other because I can lose something. The minute I have no price, I can transmit perfect joy of presence and, and freedom. I'm right here. It's all alright. That's why I work with dying people because that's as close as I can get to my root fears. Tell me how you do feel about dying. I think probably most people who have um, who are listening have heard a bit about the Hahnemann Foundation project and know your history with doing that. But where are you at with dying right now? Um, you've told the story I think several times about Gandhi when he died, yeah. falling over and being so ready to die that he said Ram as he went down. Um, where are you with dying and have you had any um, time in the past when it's been a problem for you, even if it isn't now? Well, it's, um, I am learning so much from the people I work with that are dying. I mean, I, uh, I was just with a woman who was 38, I guess. She is a lawyer. She had three kids. She died of a brain tumor. And I came into her room to be wise and helpful and kind and spacious. And there's a great story about um, uh, a very high monk and his student comes in and says to the monk, oh, how is it you can always read, your, read my mind? And the monk says to him, well, when you and I are in the room together, 
I hear a mind and I know it's not mine. <laughs> well, it was this situation that I walked into this room and I sat down. I suddenly heard a mind and I knew it was only mine. And there was only one mind in that room. And <laughs> she taught me a great deal. <laughs> I just felt like a bumbling idiot at that moment. It was delicious. I love that. Oh, God, I love it. So, so um, what I'm finding is that I'm still learning an incredible amount about uh, pain and death uh, from working with people. I'm getting much lighter and more playful. I just did a retreat in Yucca Valley with Wavy Gravy and a couple of other people, a, ten, a staff of 10 of us, in which about 20% of the people were terminally ill. And we had an incredibly far out time. We worked with movies of Auschwitz and we worked with uh, movies from the Highway Patrol of violent accidents and we played games where we shot each other with make-believe guns and we, we had dying animals along the pathway so you could watch decay each day and we had meditations on death and we just worked through all of our kind of romanticism about death so that we could all sit with eyes open and heart open and mind quiet and live together and we spent three days crying and wailing over the individual grief of the 150 people there in each of the retreats and people whose sons had committed suicide or whose husbands had died or who were dying and I was just awash in the immensity and power of the moment and the human process and our ability to get clear and straight behind the whole issue of death that we just are so scared to take it on we don't know how to deal with it, even without knowing what the future holds mm -hmm. you know, at the same moment I have such a deep conviction about that we are not our bodies that we are just in our bodies that I find the whole thing very playful because I also have a sense of reincarnation in terms of the vastness of the game and the kind of trivial nature of a human life and the preciousness of it at the same moment mm -hmm. so um, now as far as me personally I can't tell. I mean, you never know. I know that when I get to something where I might die, like some crisis, I notice that now I used to have, I'd sweat or I'd fear. Now I have sort of curiosity, which is still an attachment. Mm -hmm. I don't have the fear. I'm, oh, isn't this going to be interesting? It looks like I've just blown it, like the car goes in with skid or something like that, you know? Um, but I'm not ready yet to just be Ram, you know, not just so perfectly clear. I mean, I thought of Ben Bentoff when he, yeah. you know, in that plane. And I wondered... Because people may not know. Well, he was an extraordinarily beautiful kind of new age consciousness. And he was in the crash in that Chicago plane that went down recently. And uh, after all, there were maybe three or four seconds that there was uh, a consciousness. And where his consciousness was at that moment is hard. I w thought of myself in that situation. And I don't know whether I would have gotten my ROM going in time in that round. I really don't. I mean, I think the confusion would have caught me off guard. I don't think I'm ready yet. I mean, I may be taken on ready, and I'll just go on more births. I'll go on more births anyway, but I... Uh, but... Um, I can't tell where I'm at about it at all. I really don't know. A few years ago, I took an, uh, an LSD trip in which I became afraid I had taken badass and I was going to die. And then I thought, well, how else could I die than running out to the police? And I thought about, and I thought that every way I thought of existing, sooner or later I would die because what was going to die was the thought of who I was. This is very esoteric philosophy, but I'll slip it in anyway. And so I finally turned to the picture of my guru and I said, Maharaji, let me die. 
and I experienced the thought form slowing down until the space between the thoughts got bigger and bigger and finally I just went into one of the spaces and I wasn't and then the next thought I had was, well, you can be anything you want this time around. And I realized, and it was bittersweet because I knew I had just reincarnated. I just, my karma had reasserted itself and I just come back into life. But I said, I just died. That is, but then I realized that that's what enlightenment is. That enlightenment is the end of self-consciousness in which you just become Dharma or you just become the universe. Do you hear what I'm saying? And I think most people don't know that the enlightenment issue is about that. I mean, when I, I just taught a weekend up in New York State at the abode, and when I said to the group, you realize that what we're working on is our own psychological death. They didn't want to hear it. People did not want to hear that. And yet nirvana is the absence of separate self-consciousness. Okay. And I think that the game is much more profound than most people are ready yet to acknowledge. We have to stop now. We have to stop. All right. Ramdas, it's almost time for uh, us to stop now, but I'd like to ask you what is really important to you at this time? What is the really important thing that you're working with or the important issue, either the work on yourself or the external work? And I don't see any separation in those. So I guess they're just together. What is that for you? Well, it very much is the integration of those things. And um, uh, recently I joined a, a project called the Seva Foundation, which is a project to... Um, uh, cure uh, unnecessary blindness in the world. It turns out 80% of the blind in the world is unnecessary. It's curable or preventable. Most of it's in the third world countries. By things like Sav or, you know, like there are 60,000 blind people in India who are just waiting for a... They're blind and there's no seeing eye dogs, so they're really blind. I mean, they're really dysfunctional. They're waiting for a cataract operation which the clinics can do in four minutes and cost five dollars okay so now here's why the point of what's important to me I have had acid trips and I've meditated and most of you that are listening have had meditation or have had experiences in which you have felt one way or another you felt the unity of all beings you felt like we are a family like it's only us in the universe and I know that to be true on one plane of consciousness. But on the plane I live on every day, I still treat, act as if those blind people and the boat people off the coast of Thailand and the people starving in Bangladesh are all somehow them. When I take $5 out of my wallet to go buy, see a movie, my consciousness doesn't include the blind person in India who could, with that $5, regain a life of sight. Because if that was my father or my brother or my wife or my child or my cousin or my second cousin or my fr cousin's friend, I would immediately give up the $5. But somehow there was a point at which it became so abstract it became them. And my game is to figure out and to have the courage to figure out how to live in a way so it's only us. Because I understand that the reason people come down from their highs is because they have habits of living 
in which they deny the truths they know at the higher levels. And I am determined to figure out how to, and it's very scary. I've got a van with a nice stereo system. Does that have to go? Does it mean I'm supposed to live like the boat people or not? It may not, because when you listen to your karmic predicament, I know that I'm an American. I'm in a position. We are in the position where we have affluence. We have a whole, we have leisure. We have a whole opportunity to work on ourselves to bring consciousness to humankind that it badly needs. It needs wisdom instead of knowledge. It needs all these kinds. It needs love instead of a kindness. It needs a whole lot of different kinds. It needs compassion above, you know, all of that. And we can bring that through standing on the shoulders of our technology, of our affluence and all, not denying it. Uh, you know, so I don't think it means giving up everything and living as uh, Simone Weil did, uh, as the poorest worker, you know. And yet I've got to be able, to, when I spend five dollars, to be able to look in the eyes of the blind person, in a sort of a pun way. I've got to be able to look in the eyes of the boat people and say, yes, I'm spending this five dollars this way because this is my part in the whole thing, right? Even if it's to a movie because I need to do that with my consciousness. I've just got to bring it all together somehow. Okay. And I think that maybe lots of us want to do that now and are doing it. I think that's the work we're all about. And I just want to tell everybody that I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rhonda. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.